I saw it as an opportunity. You know, for me, I've always yeah. been a different person. And I saw fame as an opportunity to like share my unique perspective with the world. And I was naive enough to think that the world <laughs> was open enough to see who I actually was. <laughs> hey everybody, Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. This week's guest, arguably one of the most interesting characters in the history of the NFL. He left the college game as a Heisman Trophy winner and the most prolific runner the game has ever seen. One team traded their entire draft to get him, and after they did, he realized he didn't really love football and then went on a journey that took him in and out of the league for several years before he finally found his calling. I'm talking about, of course, Ricky Williams. His story is fascinating with so many twists and turns, and the way he explains it, it worked out exactly the way it was supposed to. Take a listen now and enjoy this episode with Ricky Williams. Do you ever think that maybe you should have been born 10 years later? Because it, it feels like everything that was so controversial for you back in the day doesn't seem like it's that controversial anymore. Well, I think if there, if I hadn't existed, I think maybe it might still be a little bit more controversial. So, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I embrace, I embrace being a change maker. Like you were the first guy that I really remembered that was in my mind, like, okay, this guy is so good at football but there's a part of him that doesn't want to play football. And I, I, I admit this was my limitations. Like I, I couldn't wrap my head around that. And you sort of, through your journey, made it easier for me to understand. But you were the first guy that I was like, wait a minute, he's so good at what he does. Why doesn't he want to do it? And I had a hard time with that. Just I'm letting you know that that was my shortcoming in my dealings with your story. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, it was it was my shortcoming too. And you know, I, I think people look at me and they they make the assumption that the greatest potential I have is to be an athlete. And and no doubt yeah. I was a great football player, but I knew that I was wasting my time because there were things I could be utilizing my time to actually become better than football at something that's actually more meaningful and makes more of a difference in the world. Yeah. So I, I I loved football, but I just knew that I had so much more to contribute than than scoring touchdowns. And we will get into all of that uh, in this episode, because I think your life story is fascinating on so many levels. But when did you start thinking? Because, you know, you you were when you left Texas, you were the all time NCAA rushing champion. When did you in your journey to be more than a football player start thinking, I mean, this is good and all and I, I enjoy it, but I'm not sure it's the no all end all for me. Mm, I think it probably started to occur um after after my second year in new orleans so my first year i had a bunch of injuries i missed uh four games yeah. missed four games and then next year i came back got to a thousand yards on week 10 and on my thousandth yard i broke my ankle and i think when things like that happen you know i think they occur to wake you up and, and get you to start asking questions and so i started saying that i put all my eggs in this basket and i see that i'm mortal and my bones can break and nothing I can do about it that I feel like crap. And so I just was like, that's, yeah. that doesn't work for me. I need to have a, <laughs> I need to have a life where I'm, I'm more in control and, and what's, what's going on and, and how I feel. And so I started to think, is this really what I should be doing? And every time I asked that, I got a resounding, no, no, no. That was your inner voice just telling you that this, there was something else for you. I mean, it was my inner voice. It was, it was the outer voice. It was circumstances. It was every, it was everything except for people. You know, everything yeah. except for people was telling me that I needed to be doing something else. 
when you were at UT and winning the Heisman Trophy, you, you, you were locked on completely in football at that point. You were still, this is, this is the way for me. No, no, I was, I, so when I was a kid, when I was 12, I remember watching Notre Dame football yeah. and there was something about the tradition and the mystique about Notre Dame football that made me make a decision that I want to be a college football player. And I kind of already knew it because my mom told me I was going to college and she told me that she wasn't going to be able to afford it. So it was, you know, built into my mind at a very young age that I was going to have to get a scholarship to go to college. And so yeah. my dream was only to go to college and be a football player. I didn't have any inspiration <laughs> to, to go beyond that to the NFL. But once I got to college and I was having so much success, uh, I just became the next logical step. The 1999 draft was a crazy one for a variety of reasons. I, I remember there was a big debate over whether you should have gone to the Colts. They took Edger and James. How much do you remember about all of that? And, and what was your thought process of the draft? Because the draft is like this industrial complex now. You know, it's this, it's this machine that sort of takes over everybody's time from the end of the Super Bowl to the end of April. What was it like being in that vortex for you? My my. From a kid, I, I never had any aspirations to go to the NFL. And so when I got to end of college, it was the next logical step. So I was like, cool, it's the next logical step. But I didn't think, oh, I made it. I'm fine. I, I, I didn't have, I, I saw it as an opportunity. You know, for me, I've always yeah. been a different person. And I saw fame as an opportunity to like share my unique perspective with the world. And I was naive enough to think that the world <laughs> was open enough to see who I actually was. And, <laughs> and, and so to me, the NFL wasn't an opportunity to play football and show off my talent. It was an opportunity to show off like my heart, who I like the, yeah. the engine that created the success, not the external success, because you know, not everyone is going to be able to run the football and lift weights and is going to be as explosive as I am. But everyone is going to have something that if they believe in themselves and they put the, the work in that they can be great at. And that's to me, that's something that can resonate with everyone. But just being able to run over linebackers and, you know, catch the ball out of the backfield, that, that's a that's a limited skill set. Yeah. And you were exceptional at it. Um, it's funny you say you, you, you thought it was an opportunity to show your heart because I remember. You know, when you went to New Orleans, like you would do the interviews with the helmets on because you had a little anxiety, right? So how did you manage that situation with what you just talked about wanting to share your heart with everybody? But but the the putting my helmet on was the re the response when I realized that no one cared about my heart. You know? Yeah. And yeah. You know, so so and it started early, right? I, I thought this is a great opportunity. And so I chose an agent that people didn't agree with because I saw an opportunity. When I was going through the whole recruiting process, right? All these guys, these sharks were coming at me trying to get me to sign with agents. And it just felt like gross. And I found one person where we actually had real like communication and it felt like this is a this is a real connection. And it felt like family. And it felt like this is an opportunity to do something different, to show athletes that you don't have to go down the same path. And so I signed with No Limit Sports. And, and I got, you know, Again, me expressing my heart, what was important to me. And it was like, I received all this criticism. Oh, you yeah. Know? And then I decided, you know, everyone always complains that athletes only do it for the money. And I was one of the people that actually really wasn't doing it for the money, you know? And so when I had set up my, I decided to use my contract to show people that all athletes aren't like that. But the the response was that I was stupid and I I missed an opportunity to like stick it to the team and I you know I didn't take advantage of my leverage 
And I was like, I realized no one wants, no one cares about being a good person. No one cares about these things that are important to me. And so that's why I just put the helmet on. Cause I was like, no one cares about who I really am. They just want me to go score touchdowns. That is accurate. I mean, like that, that is the way most fan bases look at their players. I, I always say like, whenever they, whenever like a rabid fan of a team sees that player somewhere outside of the football field, it's like when you, when you're a kid and you see your teacher outside of school, I'm like, what are you doing? You, 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 you only exist in this plane for me. You only exist in school. I'm not supposed to see you somewhere else. And I feel like that is what you just said sort of personifies almost every fan base when they see their favorite player not doing the thing they want them to do. And so, you know, all I did was I, I realized that and I said, okay, so if, if, if what I'm looking for, you know, what I was looking for in the, in the NFL at this point in time, the NFL doesn't have the ability to give it to me. And so eventually I got to the point and I said, how can I use this opportunity to get what I want? And, and I think I finally achieved that. You know, now I spend my days, usually football fans, booking time with me to talk about life, to talk about the purpose of life, to talk about their, their journeys, my journeys. And it's, and it's great, you know, that, that heartfelt connection of showing people my heart and being able to, to talk about the, the underpinnings that lead to that kind of the kind of success that they resonate with on the football field. That's what I was looking for the whole time. And I, and I finally, and I finally have it. And for that, I have football to think. No, absolutely. But it, I mean, it wasn't easy. Like there were a lot of bumps along the road, but you're, you're talking to a football player. You're talking to a football player. And, and this is something that keeps yeah. coming up with me. Like I'm an entrepreneur now and I'm running businesses and, and I'll have employees, people that I'm working with come up to me and say, that's hard or that's not easy. And here's what I say. I said, even me, you know, Heisman Trophy winner, you know, best player on the team. If I came out to practice, right, and coach, and the coach asked me to do a drill, and I said that's hard. Okay, every single coach in the NFL right now would say, "Get the fuck off the field right now," like, yeah. it, and everyone would get it. No one would say anything. <laughs> so, from where I come from, something being difficult or not being easy, like so, what, what that doesn't that doesn't have anything to do with anything. No, you're right. Um, I, I, I guess I was just trying to say that, you know, like, for example, the contract, which was so controversial because it was so incentive laden, you know, instead of like the, the thought process of sticking it to the team, maybe just you could have set yourself up a little sooner to do the things that you're talking about. You know what I mean? Well, no, no, no. I, I disagree because I had to go through it in order for it to be meaningful. Right. Like people, people are afraid to take a leap. People are afraid to put themselves yeah. on the line because they don't see any examples of anyone doing it. Yeah. And so for me, it's an honor. It's an it's been an honor to be that person. Right. I'm one someone that can look in the mirror and I don't ever feel like I'm full of shit. Yeah. And I don't know. There's a lot of people that can't say that. But I think we need more people to live like that. But we need examples of people who do that and they actually survive and then they thrive because that's the truth. And so I've taken this as an opportunity to show people you actually don't have anything to be afraid of. Well, you couldn't have been better at what you were doing when you decided to walk away, um, it, especially when you were in Miami. Those, those were monster seasons for you. When did it hit you that, that I, needed, I needed to get away like right now? It has to end. Uh, so there's a, there's a moment where I was sitting in my locker and it was during the offseason. And I was talking to some of the guys and I started reflecting on like when I was a kid and decided I wanted to become a football player. And I remembered it was like this this remembering moment of I was I did it to make a difference. And I was looking I looked at my life and I said, you know, uh, I don't think I'm making a difference right now. I said I, I felt like I was 
doing more. I was like distracting people for three hours on Sundays more than I was doing anything to truly inspire people. And so I realized like, this isn't it. You know, there's experiences that I need to have right now to get to where I need to go. And this is keeping me from those experiences. You know, it's interesting hearing you talk. It reminds me a lot of a, another guy who sort of did what you did, albeit in a different way. And that's Pat Tillman, yeah. who at some point decided, you know, like I remember the famous story about him once when he was at Arizona State. like, you can redshirt me, but I'm not staying for another year. I got things I want to do. Yeah. And then, of course, he felt compelled to make try and make a difference, albeit in a very different way. Yes. But I feel, like, I feel like you guys might have been very similar souls when it's all said and done. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think, and sometimes we realize it younger, sometimes we're older. But we, I think eventually we get to the point where we realize life isn't just about me, right? It's about what I, yeah. it's about me as far as what I can contribute, but I, I have to work on that. I have to build that. And then once I have something to contribute, then it's time to start contributing it. And I think what football taught me was how to, was how to set goals and accomplish those goals and how to work together as a team, how to cooperate. But I feel like once I got that training, I was ready to utilize that training out in the world. Uh, and you certainly have, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But why don't we take our first break here? We're talking with uh, Ricky Williams. Uh, when we come back on this episode of Half Forgotten History, we'll talk about the turning point, his journey, uh, and then what he's doing now. Stay with us. Ricky Williams with us on Half Forgotten History. So in a tournament filled with upsets, including the first ever 15 seed, St. Peter's, to make it to the Elite Eight, we are left with the elite of the elite still playing. It'll be Blue Bloods on the Bayou, the Final Four teams, Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, and Villanova have won half of the last 16 national championships. In a dream matchup, the Blue Devils and Tar Heels will meet in the NCAA tournament for the first time as Coach K's farewell tour rolls on. Duke is a four-point favorite, but this rivalry is so, so close. In the last 100 meetings, Duke 50 wins, North Carolina 50 wins. The other semifinal game, Kansas is laying four and a half to Villanova, who beat the Jayhawks in the 2018 tournament on the way to the Wildcats' third national title. North Carolina and Villanova have each covered all four of their games in this tournament. Duke is three and one against the spread, and Kansas is two and two. Find more of Trey's trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube. All right, back with Ricky Williams here on this episode of Half Forgotten History. So when you made the decision, how many people told you, what are you doing? Are you crazy? I mean, why are you doing this? Well, there, there was two. I made the decision twice. Okay. And the first time I made yeah. the decision, I chickened out. And the second time I didn't. I, I kind of put myself under the fire. So this was, this was about two months before the 2004 football season. Um, right after I had that, I, that, that idea of I'm distracting people. There must be some, you know, and, and I remember I, I drove down from New York to Miami with a good friend of mine and long drive. So we had a lot of time to talk and we were talking back and forth. And my friend, she was an actress or she described herself as an actress always. And we started talking and, you know, we started talking about her acting career and she acted in two plays like five years previously, but she was still describing herself as an actress. And, and I started to think yeah. like, this woman's a fraud. You know, and that turned into <laughs> and that turned into like, am I a fraud? You know, is football really what I like what I'm meant to be doing? And it got me thinking. And where I, the inner voice, it said no. And the next image I got was a was a uh, image of Denny Green. Weird story. I, image of Denny Green. And I remember hearing him speak at a, at a conference and, and talking about how 
what makes him so what made him so passionate about coaching was helping young men you know cross that barrier and, and become leaders yeah. and I, and i that and i felt like that's what that's what i want that's what i'm on this earth to do and and so i started thinking okay and in my mind i started thinking okay so i'll go back to school i'll get my degree and then i'll you know i'll go down that path you know i i've built enough cachet in this world that the doors will be open for me to go down that path okay that was the thought process and then I started calling on my friends because I was like excited. You know, I felt like I found I found a new lease on life. Right. And so I called a bunch of my friends, family members and told them the news that I'm going to I'm going to retire and I'm going to go back to school. And they tried to act excited, but all of them were like, are you crazy? You know, they, they couldn't hold it very long. They're like, Are you yeah. crazy? You have this golden opportunity. Yeah. Why would you throw it what away? What are you doing? Yes, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, I was I was I let them convince me into like rethinking my idea. So. And then I said, okay, maybe I won't retire now. I'll play one more year and then I'll ride off into the sunset. Okay. And, but, but I was like kind of going back and forth. And, you know, while this was all going on, I was in the NFL's drug program, but I was pretty much out of the program. I'd been in for two years and they were, they were, they were really ready to let me out. And so I, I kind of played a game with myself. I said, okay, if I can make it through the off season and not fail any drug tests, then that means I'm meant to play one more year. But if I end up failing a drug test, then that means it's time to retire. Okay. So uh, it was a week before the NFL football season, and I got a letter from the NFL saying that I failed a drug test. And I was in the Bahamas at the time, and I remember I got the letter. I was at my attorney's place in the Bahamas. Of course. And I got a letter. Of course you were. My attorney and I were sitting in, the, in, the, in his bedroom smoking a joint, and we got the letter. No, we weren't smoking a joint, but we got the letter. Uh, we smoked a joint after. I'm good with it either way. It doesn't we, matter. We, no, we, we, but it, it, we smoked a joint after the letter. So I got the letter. Gotcha. I opened it up, and I was sitting with and we talked. And I said, "This well, this is it. I said, I said I'm about to I'm about to end my football career. Went over to the to the phone in the office, picked up the phone to call Dr. Brown, who at the time was the head of the NFL's uh, drug program. And I called him up and he said, "Yeah, he said, you know, he said uh, we found out about your test and I said you don't have to worry about it." I, I said I said I'm done. I said thank you for, you know, for the past couple of years it's been great getting to know you, but uh but I think I'm ready to do something else. And he said, "Well, I wish you the best of luck." And it's like, as I picked up the phone to make the call, I saw the, my whole life flash in front of me. And I noticed that like all the really meaningful events in my life had somehow been tied to football and realizing that I was about to end all that and start over. And when I hung that phone up, I felt this huge weight lift off my shoulders. And I felt this like freedom to be anyone and anything that I wanted to be. All right. And so I uh, had that phone call, got off the phone, my intern and I, then we smoked a joint and we just laughed and talked and maybe even cried a little bit. You know, it was kind of a death, you know, that this, this illustrious yeah. Heisman is, you know, c career was done, you know? Uh, and, and so that was the story. And then the next day uh, I called up a good friend of mine, Dan Levitard. And I said, uh, cause no one knew, you know, no one knew. So I called and I said, you know, I'm done. I'm hanging it up. Um, and he wrote a story about it and he wrote a great story, you know? Cause he, he knew me. So he got, he was like, you know, guy wants to do yeah. something else. Right. So about a week or two later, Dan and I are talking and I, and I start telling Dan the story about the drug test and the game I played with myself. And I think I put Dan in a difficult situation because as part of the media, that's like, a, <laughs> that's a, if he gets scooped on that, you know, it puts him in a difficult, yes. it puts him in a difficult spot, but as my best friend, you know, so, you know, I said, do, I said, I'm sorry to put you in that spot. You do what you have to do. So the next morning, <laughs> The next morning I woke up and it was everywhere that, you know, Ricky Williams quits because he fails a drug test. And, yeah. and although, you know, at the time the world wasn't really ready to understand the, 
you know, the, the deeper part of that story. And so it, it did throw a wrench in my plans to go back to school right away. Um, but it, it, it worked out. So instead I started to travel. Okay. Uh, I started to travel around the world Yeah, and, and just start to have different experiences that I hadn't been able to have because I've been in football camp. I've been playing football my whole life. And I started to meet different people. And it was amazing traveling around the world and meeting people who had no idea what football was, who had no idea who I was. I started to get, yeah. like, for the first time in a long time, a different reflection of myself that had nothing to do with football. And it allowed me to start to nurture and care about and learn about other parts of myself. And one of the things I learned is that I was, like, actually quite intelligent, you know, and not just intelligent for a football player. But I was noticing, you know, traveling around the world, having conversations with PhDs and people that I, I thought were much more intelligent that I was holding my own. And I started to build more confidence. I started reading more and I started to like realize, wow, there's this whole part of myself <laughs> that I, I really would like to, to keep like nurturing. And so I, I came back to the States. I uh, found a school in Northern California and I started studying uh, Ayurveda, which is it's like spiritual, yeah. spiritual medicine. And, you know, being a football player, I knew I had a lot of physical stuff to heal and just being a human, I had a lot of emotional stuff to heal. And so I started focusing all my attention to like dealing with all this stuff. And I, and I learned some amazing tools, techniques, modalities to help myself heal. And also it transferred in learning ways to help other people feel better. And, uh, and as I was doing that, I was like, wow, this feels so much better. <laughs> this feels so much better to me than playing football. I'm better at it and I'm actually helping people. So, it, you know, it was like, a, I feel very fortunate to have, have had that experience. Yeah, it, it, that's a fascinating perspective on it because from the other side of us that weren't on the journey with you, so many people are like, what is he doing? What is he searching for? Like, why is he doing all this stuff? And we all felt like you were lost. And it sounds like the exact opposite was happening in the way you were perceiving what was happening to you. At that well, time. that was just my experience of it. I mean, you know, I tried yeah. to think that I was lost, but every time I was lost, I found myself feeling better. And so who knows? Maybe we have to be lost to be to, to find something. You know, it's it's the thing I learned on the journey is like trust to trust myself. Because yeah. every time I trust myself, everything works. That's everything that, honestly, out. that's the hardest thing for people to do. You're a hundred percent right. Cause you know, you, you listen, I've sort of gone through this very recently. I was somewhere for 20 plus years and I was like, well, is that define me? Does that, is that who I am? Is that who I, are people going to even accept me that I'm not with that institution anymore? And quite frankly, not, a, not as, uh, you know, on a, on a slightly lesser level than what you went through, it's been very eye-opening for me that like, okay, why was I concerned about that? Why didn't I trust myself at the time? Because it's all worked out yeah. fine. Yeah. And it does. And and that's the beauty of it. I mean, the, the hardest part is that that first time where you go out on a limb and you have to deal with the nerves, but, but usually if you, if you're yeah. aimed somewhat in the right direction, you get rewarded for it and, and you're, you know, you're motivated to keep doing it. And that's what happened with me. It was little things at first, learning to trust myself and then bigger things and then bigger things. And now life is so much easier because I trust myself. So I don't have to deal with so much doubt. It's just not, it's, I've just proved it out of the way. Yeah. You mentioned you, you like to be a, a, a game changer in terms of certain things and, and uh, the, the drug test that you failed. You know, those things really don't exist anymore. Uh, and a large part of that, I think, is what you, what you've been pushing, and and you know how pro cannabis you are. Um, 
do you take pride in the fact that the league essentially, I mean, they do test, but you have to, you have to pop so high to fail a drug test for weed in the NFL anymore. It's almost impossible. It, I, I don't know if pride is the right word, but are you happy, for lack of a better term, that the, those limitations which were there for you aren't, aren't there for a lot of people now? So the, the the deeper mission for me out of all of this is I look back at, at my story in the NFL. And for, for the most part, you know, pretty much all of my teammates are going to have nothing but positive things to say about me. Pretty much all of my coaches are going to have nothing but positive things to say to me. And aside from the cannabis thing, pretty much all the fans are going to have nothing positive to say to me. So, you know, there's no reason in my mind that a person like me shouldn't have a place in the NFL. No reason. Right. And I think that's changed now is that people that are like me right now are, are allowed more in the NFL. And that's that's that makes me happy. Well, it, it should, because I, I do think like the, the stigma of weed has changed dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years. Right. I mean, when when I was a kid, it was like considered the worst thing ever, you know. But here, here, kid, have a beer. That wouldn't that wasn't an issue. You know, it it does feel almost that it's almost reversed now. And I, I think that the idea of like someone smoking a plant that makes you feel a little better is like, so who cares? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's nice. We're, we're getting there. Uh, and hopefully it goes a little bit beyond who cares. You know, uh, you know my yeah. experience and of my journey, you know, and the way it's been told is cannabis has been a, a bad part of the journey. But for me, cannabis has actually been the, the most beautiful part of the journey. And, and that's, a, that's really a story and a message that I, that I want to get out into the world because there are so many people that are needlessly suffering in the world and there's something that could help them feel better and open up their mind and change their perspective. But because of the stigma and the taboo, you know, they're, they're anti. It's funny, I, I had a conversation with the guy and we started talking and, and he, he booked some time with me. So I, I knew he was open to people smoking. And so he said, you know, I've never smoked. And he yeah. almost said it like he was like he was proud of it. You know, I've never smoked before. I never, I never got high before. Yeah. And then he starts talking about his anxiety and he starts to go through this list of like 20 different pills, pharmaceuticals, right? And all the difficult yeah. side effects. And, you know, and I was sitting there kind of laughing, like laughing to myself and just seeing like how many people are suffering because of the stigma. And it's just it's it hurts a little bit, you know? Just yeah. I, I talk to people and I deal with people. And so I, I'm, I just really feel moved to try to open people's minds. And again, you don't have to smoke it. Like there's, there's taboos around smoke and all those other things, but the cannabis has progressed so much in, in pop culture that there's capsules, there's gummies, there's even healthy food. There's pretty much it, drinks, you know? Hey, yeah. Ricky, yeah. Ricky, yeah. Ricky. There's some gummies. There's some gummies right over there. Just letting you know. <laughs> <laughs> telling you that right. Exactly. And, and you know, when we're if we're being real, so many people are on on yeah. something anyway. And so I, for me, it's, let's have a discourse. Let's have a conversation instead of like putting these things in the shadows and have all these people suffering for no reason. And, and that's been a a lot of NFL players now are sort of embracing. Help. Megatron, Calvin Johnson, uh, is is big in this now. But I think it. it it's interesting that it comes from a lot of NFL players because they go through more physical pain than almost anybody else. So they would know more than anybody else, whether this stuff actually works or not. hundred percent. And also, you know, if you look at, if you ever watch a football game, or if you've ever been around a football practice, you, you, 
you like you see what it takes to be a football player. And so if you see these guys are are using this thing that's supposed to be detrimental to them, but they're still able to perform at this high level, right? To me, the question is, and why? How do we punish these guys? It's like how are they using this to help to to support them and help them be able to perform at a high level? And and that's where I would like to see. That's where I would like to see the conversation going. Is like not how why is this thing bad, but if they're how is this thing helping people? If you have so many people in this country are turning to cannabis right now, it must be doing something for them. Why yeah. why not why not figure that out? But what what would what would be the next step you would like the league for, for in, just because in, in this context here because obviously there there are things far more interesting and diverse in, in the in the world in general but in in the context of, of this conversation and how you went through this and and learned it from a football player what would be the next thing you would like to see the league sort of embrace along these lines it's to listen to the players and trust the players this is like you know to me football players we put so much on we put our bodies on the line and to me in the nfl should has a responsibility to, to the players to give them any reasonable means to take care of their bodies. And so communicate with the players, like see what's working for them and what's not work together with the players to help the players take care of themselves. Don't create obstacles to the players feeling good. That that's not, that's not helpful to anyone. Yeah. Um, so tell me more about Heisman.com, which by the way, people that don't know the company, one of the companies that he works with, it's not a Heisman trophy, H E I S M E. And it's, H-I-G-H-S-M-A-N. So tell me a little more about it. Well, it's, I mean, it's exactly what we've been what we've been talking about. And it's, for me, it's changing the conversation. Yeah. Even when you hear people talking positively about cannabis, they still are saying that you have to be hurt or in pain or something that has to be wrong with you before it's okay to feel good. And and I don't agree with that. You know, I, I know what you know, for me, when I consume cannabis, it allows my mind to like lift a little bit and to open and to be aware of different possibilities. And, and sometimes when I'm stuck in a situation, I'm not seeing it or I'm stuck in an argument with my wife that I consume cannabis and I and it helps me look at it differently and and take ownership for my life and actually do things to improve them. And I think that well, because of the stigma and the way people talk about cannabis, most people, unfortunately, are using cannabis to escape. Right. And I think to, to have this different conversation yeah. and, you know, as a professional football player, you can't escape your issues and be successful. You have to learn to deal with them. And so I just think you have to look at the mindset of the person that is using the tool. And we don't have enough people with this kind of mindset that have enough courage to be honest about how they use cannabis. And so I'm trying to create a safe place for people to be honest about how they're using cannabis, because there's so many highly no pun intended, functional, successful, yeah. successful people that are integrating cannabis to help contribute to their success. Those are the stories. Those are the stories that I want to hear. And in creating a brand, it starts to cre give people like things that they can put on. It starts to give them a way to practice, to, to affirm this belief that cannabis is adding something of value to their lives. Do you still get people that say, Ricky, you're full of shit. You just want to smoke weed and get high. No, because they look at my life and it, and that wouldn't make sense. Yeah. They'd feel foolish saying that. And that's that's really so to me like th this brings it full circle because when I did leave the NFL, there we we weren't having these conversations about cannabis. And so what I was left with was did I did I just ruin my life? And right. so when I realized, you know, the way this story ends isn't isn't based on other people, it's based on me. And if I like live my life and I show people there's nothing wrong with this, then my life as an becomes an example. It's not just people talking. 
And so it was, it's important to me to, for me to, to live what I, to live what I talk about and to, to live what's important to me. Listen, no one can question that when it comes to Ricky Williams, considering what you had, what you left to do what you wanted. Uh, I don't think anybody can question that you, you, to use an old football term, you talk the talk and you walk the walk in terms of the things you believe in. I, I don't think anybody can question that. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, that, that seems to be like a low threshold at this point uh, in the Ricky Williams story. Well, but to me, I mean, yeah, for me, it's like, you know, when I go to bed at night, when I wake up, like, do I enjoy looking in the mirror? Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I'm getting old, losing my hair. So look, looking in the it. mirror is not so much about the external. It's not so much about the external thing. You have to look deeper now. And so I was like, you know, when you're not, and you know, right? When you're, it's true. It's unfortunate sometimes, kind of, but it's true. When you're not, when you're not so famous, you actually have to be a good person. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. You know, no gift bags. They don't give gift bags at every corner. Yes. Uh, for for everybody. Um, how much? Just out of curiosity, how much do you enjoy football now? Do you watch it? What, what's your What's your relationship with football like? So I'll just tell a little like little anecdote here. So football is never on in my house, yeah. you know, and, and my wife met me after I retired from football and she was never really a football fan. So it's, it's just not a big part of our of our lives. OK, but all right, I had a Super Bowl party here in L.A. for the, for the Super Bowl and, and the game was on. And as soon as like the ball was kicked off, like I didn't move, <laughs> I didn't move. And my wife looked at me and she was like, <laughs> she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know if it's on if it's on i can't help i'm all i'm all the way in mm -hmm. right watching every step watching every little thing okay because it's so much a part of who i am but i, I it doesn't occur to me that football's on to go actually watch it but if it's there i'm i'm all the way in so you watch games occasionally i guess yeah yeah if i'm at a party or at a friend's house and the game is on you know they can be talking to me I, i'm i don't socialize when football's on yeah. <laughs> i can't help it you know, and I think maybe that's why it's not fun to watch football with me. Well, it's, it's addicting. I mean, it is because, you, you know, once you're into it, it's it's hard to pull yourself out of it. And I, I get this a lot from former players that I talk to, and I'd love to get your take on it. Um, a lot of them will watch a game and say, I can't believe I used to do that. Like Dante Stallworth once told me, like, oh, 100%. Yeah, like, you 100%. know, I can't believe that, uh, you know, going over the middle and just get, I can't believe I used to do that. Do you feel the same way, I guess? hundred percent. And there's a, it's the, it's the, like the hits and stuff. But when I watch the game, I think of everything else that goes into it. And that's where I'm like, man, I can't believe I put myself through all of that. Yeah. But you know, but, and, uh, and yeah, sometimes it's the hits. I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, that's, but you know, when you were younger, we have a lot more, we have a lot more energy and a lot less wisdom. Yeah. So we, we, <laughs> we do things. Well, sadly, I think I have a lot less of both the older I get, but that, that's an entire different conversation we can have. Well, why don't we take our second break here uh, with Ricky? Because when we come back, I think he has some questions for me that, uh, that he wanted to ask me before we set up this interview. So we'll come back in with Ricky on Half Forgotten History right after this. So in a tournament filled with upsets, including the first ever 15 seed, St. Peter's, to make it to the Elite Eight, we are left with the elite of the elite still playing. It'll be Blue Bloods on the Bayou. The final four teams, Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, and Villanova, have won half of the last 16 national championships. In a dream matchup, the Blue Devils and Tar Heels will meet in the NCAA tournament for the first time as Coach K's farewell tour rolls on. 
Duke is a four-point favorite, but this rivalry is so, so close. In the last 100 meetings, Duke 50 wins, North Carolina 50 wins. The other semifinal game, Kansas is laying four and a half to Villanova, who beat the Jayhawks in the 2018 tournament on the way to the Wildcats' third national title. North Carolina and Villanova have each covered all four of their games in this tournament. Duke is three and one against the spread, and Kansas is two and two. Find more of Trey's trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube. All right, back with Ricky Williams. Um, when we set up the interview, uh, your your team asked for my birthday and where I was born and all this kind of stuff because you, you do a lot of astrology now, right? Yeah, yeah, that's my uh, that's my day job. I I, I sit here. And I sit here, I look at astrological charts, and I have conversations with people about what I see. All right. So I, you, I was born in September of 1963 in New York City. Astrologically, what do you glean from that? So the, the question I have, because for the, the utmost accuracy in a birth chart, yeah. we need accurate birth time. Okay. So how accurate is this 9 a.m.? How accurate is this 9 a.m.? Fairly accurate. I, I knew I was born. My mom went into labor that night. I was born the next morning. So, yeah. Okay. All right. So, so I'm somewhat limited. Yeah. I'm somewhat limited. Well, so am I. So that's perfect. When I talk to someone, I'm not. I'm usually not talking uh, in an open interview with a with a celebrity or a known person. Yeah. And so, because like the, the world already knows, right? That that you're in the media. Yeah. Okay. And when I look at this chart, the 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 energy or the sign that jumps out most is Virgo. Okay. Yeah. So in astrology, people mostly know that their son or their son was, they say, what's your sign, but it's really your sun sign. Okay. But in astrology, we use 10 different planets. So we have potentially 10 different signs, but for you, you have four of the 10 planets in Virgo. All right. Okay. And here's how, here's how I describe Virgo. Okay. Virgo, the, the ancients depicted Virgo as a virgin. Okay. As a virgin. And it's not about sex, but it is about purity, purity. Okay. And so Virgos typically have an ideal of what is right and what is pure. Okay. An ideal that they're aiming for. But Virgo in astrology, we say is an earth sign. So Virgos are very humble and they have a very real sense of how things are right now. And so I say Virgos are constantly aware of the gap between where I should be and where I am right now. Okay. And so a lot of the life is, is based on how do you handle, okay, that awareness of not being good enough. Okay. And the answer is two things. Ceaseless effort is one. And the second one is self-love. What I mean by that, it's, it's the way that the craftsperson, okay. Someone who really, who wants to become really, really good at what they do. Okay. They lean into their faults because they know by being aware of where they made a mistake, it gives them the ability to correct it and to keep getting better and to keep getting better and to keep getting better. And here's the, here's the story I tell to, to people that have a lot of Virgo energy in their chart. Okay. I use the, the craftsperson theme and I say, imagine there's a carpenter. Okay. But he, he does well, you know, he makes fancy desks for, for wealthy CEOs. Right. Okay. And all the wealthy CEOs, they want to compete and have like the nicest Oak desk. Okay. And so they, they refer. And so he gets a new referral. The guy comes and he says, you know, I want, I want one of those desks. Okay. And the carpenter says, all right, come back in three months. I'll have it ready for you. Okay. So three months go by. It's the night before the guy is coming to pick up his desk. Okay. And our carpenter goes to bed and he, he, just, he lives only a couple blocks from his workshop. Okay. So he's, he's in bed that night and he's tossing and he's turning and he's thinking, you know, there's one edge. Ah, there's one edge on that table that, oh, 
I, I could I could do a little bit better. OK. And then the other voice says, no, it's fine. It's good. OK. But he can't take it. So he gets up about three o'clock in the morning, hops in his car, drives down to the workshop, spends about two hours just getting that edge perfect. OK. All right. And he's done. Next day, the guy comes and picks up the office. The guy doesn't notice that he spent that extra time on that edge. Yeah. The guy loves the desk. Okay. Right. And our hero, right, is feeling extremely content because he knows he did a good job. Okay. That, that's how that's how I describe Virgo. And if someone can get that, right, they're good. They're good. Wow. All right. I got I got to I got to go clean up some stuff. Then I I feel like my effort might be a little <laughs> lacking after that story. I have somebody of those House of Virgos yeah. thing in there. So. So well, you, the, and the, and so, again, the, depending there's some depending on birth time because birth yeah. time will modify this a little bit. But yeah. but if you're fairly close, right, yeah. the area of life where you're going to experience this Virgo energy is of groups, organizations, friends, yeah. right? And I and we know you know based on your story associated with the large corporation group organization, right? Yeah. And and I would sense right the the idea that probably this is my guess looking at the chart. The idea that that pushed you over the edge is that you weren't able to really perfect your craft in the way you wanted to in that environment. Can I, can I tell you something? You, you nailed that Please. part of it. Like uh, the last yeah. few years there, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I, I just felt yeah. like was I, I felt like I was just sort of spinning my wheels. So that part of it, my friend, you you absolutely nailed astrologically. So well done. Thank you. Um, Thank you. 10 years from now, what do, you, what do you want people to think about Ricky Williams? Or, or does that even matter to you? Does that even matter to you? Well, of course it matters. Of course it matters. Of course it matters. Uh, I want people to think that they're glad that they knew I existed. Yeah. That just They want them to feel like, wow, knowing him has contributed something positive to my life. That's pretty good. Um, how, how often you said you, you reach out to people and you talk to people, how do people get in touch with you to, to sort of have a conversation with you? Yeah. So I've been, um, I've been making an appearance, uh, on Dan Lebitard's yeah. uh, show like once a week and I, and they'll send me a couple of uh, athletes in the news and I'll look at their chart and say a couple of things. And I guess people have really resonated with, with what I'm talking about. And I started doing that and, and my inbox is, is going crazy and people, you know, my schedule is booked out a couple of months, people trying to, to book some time and, and have these these conversations. It's It's been really, really cool. And and where can people find out more about the company Heisman? Is it is it just Heisman.com? Is that what it is? It's Heisman.co.co. H-I-G-H-S-M-A. Yeah. M-A-N.co. We're trying to get calm, but you know how that works. Yeah. I'm sure there are people like you in the league right now who are thinking things that are very similar to what you thought when you were there, but just are, are, are unsure or a little bit not ready to sort of embrace what you embraced. What would you say to those people? I'd say check out Heisman because you know, that this is what we're trying to build is really a, a community of like conscious people that, that really want to do something to make the world a better place. And, and we're, we're everywhere. And I feel like part of this brand is a, is like a, the bat signal, you know, let's, yeah. let's all come together and, and talk and build something. Well, listen, you, you, you've certainly done that and you, you built an amazing football career and then people all thought you were nuts. And then at the end of the day, I think people realized you probably were more enlightened than a lot of people wanted to admit. Uh, I, listen, this has been fascinating for me and uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time. It's, it's been a really fun conversation. No, I've enjoyed this, Trey. Thank you. Once again, thanks to Ricky Williams. He's happy. And quite frankly, 
that's what we all strive to be. Coming up next week, another Hall of Famer. Arguably, maybe the most famous chin in the history of the NFL when you throw in a little spittle and a scowl and a mustache. I'm talking about, of course, the longtime head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Bill Cowher. We'll see you next week.